thy name, thy kingdom come. He tells us that we ought to make that a regular part of our routine prayer. And that is to pray for his kingdom to come. It has come into our lives, into our hearts when we receive the Holy Ghost. And we have yielded to him and we've repented of our sins. We've been baptized in his name. We've yielded to the gospel message in, in obedience and in faith. And as a result, God gave us the Holy Ghost. And that is the seal of the blessed hope of promise. It is the sign, the outward sign that God has justified us. Meaning just as if you have never sinned. The gift of the Holy Ghost is just just that. He justified us. Meaning he accepted our repentance in faith. He accepted our baptism in faith. As a sign, as a reward for that, he seals us with that blessed hope of promise. And tells us that indeed our faith and obedience in faith has been accepted by him. And with that, we are born again into his kingdom. We're brought out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. I will read that scripture one more time later on in a different setting from Colossians 1. But Matthew 4.23 tells us that Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And I told you in Matthew 6.10, he said, we need to pray regularly, thy kingdom come. And in Matthew 9.35, the Bible tells us, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Hallelujah. I think it's important for us to note that the signs, wonders, and miracles, healings, and manifestations of the Holy Ghost is part and parcel, or should be, with the preaching of the gospel. And so it was expected. It was uh, taught to us from the word time and again by example that when he preached the gospel of the kingdom, the things happened. And he expects that of his church as well. Hallelujah. And so the kingdom of God, as we read in Romans 14, 17, is not meat or drink. It's not about food. It's not about clothes. It's not about how much we have, all of that. Uh, but it is uh, it's not a, a place of, of continued state of, of satisfaction, meaning our feelings aren't always satisfied that we have enough. So that's what he's trying to tell us. The the kingdom of God and whether you're in the kingdom is is not represented by how much stuff you have and how much food you have in your belly or how much money you got in your pocket. But it's so much instead uh, how much you have been yielded to the spirit and are you in right standing with God. Jesus told us and his disciples in Luke 12, 15, And he said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And in verse 23, he says that the life is uh, more than meat and the body is more than raiment. So when we're in the kingdom, we have to understand that just because we're born into the kingdom, it does not mean that we become monetarily and in possessions altogether wealthy. 
Jesus didn't come to preach a gospel of prosperity where you, you, know, you give X amount of dollars to, to him and he'll multiply it so many fold and then he'll guarantee you a rich, prosperous life for as long as you live on this earth. No, quite the contrary. Now, I will say that there's a dimension there that I probably need to address and that we find in Mark chapter 10 when he, uh, uh, he offered, actually offered uh, apostleship to the rich young ruler and he went away sorrowful because Jesus told him to sell everything he has and then come follow after him because we find that everything he owned really owned him. And he could not put his priorities on order by making Jesus number one or the righteousness of the kingdom of God number one. And so he went away aggrieved and sorrowful, the Bible said, and taking that opportunity as a, as a lesson that Jesus began to talk to his disciples and he said, uh, he looked round about and he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God? And of course, they were shocked at that. And, uh, and, and then he realized that, uh, that they misunderstood what he said, so he repeated it in a different way by saying, children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches. It's not those have, who have riches, but those that trust in riches. That's the big difference. So the problem is when many times when we, when we get riches, we, we end up trusting them more than we trust God. And we think that if we trust riches, then we have everything we need and we can depend upon that to, to take us through any kind of trial. But there's so many things that money cannot help us through. Money can't help us through sickness. Money can't help us through depression, discouragement, a family tragedy. Money can, is not the answer to all of our needs. And so, so when you trust your riches, you have a one-dimensional focus, and it can possess you and, and own you, and it can, can move you to a place where you, 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 your priorities are totally out of whack. Right. And that's what happened to the rich young ruler. And so Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying to them among them, so, well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked upon them and says, with men it's impossible, but with God, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And then Peter makes the statement, but uh, Lord, Lord, we have left all, and we have followed thee. And Jesus answered, verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospel's. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. Now first note in this kingdom uh, principles oriented lesson is that the priorities of the disciples was Jesus number one in a kingdom. Jesus in the kingdom number one. And they had left the profession. They had left. Matthew left his, his, his uh, taxation business. And, and, uh, and Peter and several of his brethren left his, their, their occupation as fishermen. Um, and so, so others have left careers. And so Peter, he said, well, Lord, geez, we left all. And is that all we get? And he says, no, you'll get something, but not the way you think. 
And when he said, you will receive a hundredfold in this time, houses and brethren and systems and mothers, children, he's really speaking in a spiritual sense. Because, you know, when, when you're born again, sometimes your relatives aren't your relatives anymore. Your friends aren't your, relative, your, your friends anymore. Your brothers and sisters in the natural aren't your, your relatives anymore. I've had that happen to me for a while. You know, this, well, you're just part of a cult, you're this and that, and they distance themselves, and they almost disown you. Some they have disowned for the kingdom because of your stance for the kingdom and following after Jesus with everything that you have. And so Jesus was saying, you may lose some relatives, but I'm going to give you some new ones. And I can tell you that my, when my fleshly relatives turned against me in the beginning, I had this church. I had so many fathers and mothers in here, so many brothers and sisters. I had so many houses to go to, even when I was poor, to barely afford mine. I could go, in fact, every, every church night we were at somebody's house and we were having fellowship and friendship. And, and I tell you what, I got a brand new family and, and, and more than one location. I had more than one house. You have to remember, you know, uh, and, and now, especially in missionary, I know so many other people in other countries. I can go to so many countries. I say, I'm coming and I have a place to sleep. I've got a bed. I got a house. I don't own it. I don't have to own it. And this is something you have to understand. You know, uh, again, Jesus didn't come and preach a gospel to make us rich, as I said. But he did say in Matthew 6, and this is crucial, that, uh, that if we seek him first in his kingdom, that all of those things that we need, food, shelter, and clothes, will be given unto us because our heavenly father cares for us. He knows what we need. And you say, well, that's not much. I mean, just having clothes on my back and food to eat and drink, you know, I mean, that's not a whole lot. That's, you know, that's not much of a guarantee. But if you just really think about it for a minute, a rich man, the richest man in the world, you can take a billionaire, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, all those guys, take their billions. They may have several houses, mansions, but they can only sleep in one bed at a time. And if you sleep in one bed, you are no less better, less worse off than he is. You're a rich man. You got a bed? Well, the wealthiest of wealthiest also has one bed to sleep in. He might have a thousand, but he can only sleep in one at a time. I say, well, I don't have a refrigerator full of food. You know, that's not the point. The point is, you know, when, when you eat enough to fill your stomach, the rich man, when he eats a feast and he fills his stomach, that's, there's only so much you can fill up with. All right? Even the wealthiest man can only feed himself so much. And if you have that much every day, then you've got just as much as the wealthiest man on earth. You see this? If you've got shelter over your head, then you've got as much as the wealthiest man in the world. And God said, if you put me first, I'll make sure I'll provide for you because I'm a good father. I'm the heavenly father. I know what you have need of. But you're going to have to make me your father. 
you and I are going to have to get into a relationship with one another. Because fathers and a family take care. Now, good fathers take care of their, of, their, of their children. And God is a good God. Can you say praise the Lord? Amen. So this is why it's important to, to learn that when we come into the kingdom of God, then uh, we come into a right standing with God. That is the most important step that we can make. When we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, in faith, uh, then it is where we come into a right relationship, a right standing. That, that's what righteousness is all about. And notice, Jesus preached righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Peter, Peter, Paul said in Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is neither meat nor drink, but righteousness. Righteousness first, and then peace, and then joy. Righteousness is very much first. It's the first pillar in the kingdom. That right standing with God is so important because everything else comes from that right relationship, that right standing before God. If we don't have that right standing, if we don't have that righteousness imputed unto us through our obedient faith, then we don't have peace and we don't have joy. And we don't have the promise of the provisions that the Father promised us because we're not in right standing with him. Very, very, very important. So it's a state of right relationship with God. Uh, It's where we have the power uh, to, to do the things that are right. And it's only by the power of the Holy, Holy Spirit. So righteousness, it's right living. Uh, and, uh, and then we come to peace and joy and love, all those benefits that come with living in the kingdom of God and being filled with his spirit. Amen. And with that comes the mind of Christ. The Bible exhorts us to have the same mind as Christ had. In Philippians 2, 5 through 7, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. When you come into the kingdom and you're born again, you're going to have to get rid of your pride. You're going to have to do what Jesus showed us to do by example, and that is to put on a mindset of humility. You're going to have to be humble to accept help. You're going to have to be humble to accept some of the statements that God makes about you and your nature, about the things that you have to do and change in your life. It takes humility to accept accept criticism from God himself. It takes humility to obey and to yield to God. And yet that's exactly what what God promises. And as we do that, we become servants, his servants. We become free, really. There's a great liberty in obedience. Amen. There's there's liberty in obeying God. And when we know who we are and what our limitations are and what what God wants to do with our lives... There's a great burden that is lifted off of you because you're not trying to be everything to everybody. God helps you focus your life and he helps you to focus your your resources and focus your your plans and your goals. And He first of all brings order out of chaos. He gives you new purpose and he opens your eyes. And that happens because you come out of darkness in this marvelous light. Colossians 1, 12 and 13 tells us that we are to give thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet or suitable to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. 
who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. <clears throat> Amen. And that's important, coming into the kingdom of his dear son. Hallelujah. In Matthew 6.24, it's interesting, uh, as I quoted to you, Matthew 6.33, about Jesus uh, telling us that we ought to first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. It's given in the context of a previous verse beginning in chapter 6, verse 24. So by the time you get to Matthew 6, 33, he begins with this statement in verse 24. And I think this is also very crucial. It says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, uh, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the, uh, the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold, the fowls of the air. He gives the examples of, of the flowers of the, uh, of the air, how that our heavenly Father feeds them. And he says, aren't you much better than they? Uh, and he says, then who, uh, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? Who, just by their own thinking, can add height to themselves? He says, you can't. He says, why take ye thought for the raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow and how they toil out. They don't work. Neither do they spin. They don't do weaving or anything. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow, is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall, I, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But it begins with who you serve. You cannot serve God and mammon. If you're serving the world, you're in the kingdom of darkness. But if you're serving in the kingdom of light, if you have been brought out of darkness into his light, then you've got a different father now. You've got a different God. You don't have the God of this world ruling over your life. You've got the God who created the universe. You don't have an evil God. You have, you have a, a holy God, a loving God who knows how to care for his own. So you see, the, the, the fulfillment of the promise of, of providing for everything that you have need of is rooted in the ground of who your father is, who you are yielding to, who you are serving. Jesus puts it in the, in the context of serving. You cannot serve God and mammon. Because the truth is, we are serving one or the other, whether we like it or not. You're going to have to serve somebody. You're either serving the sin of this world, you're serving Satan, or you're serving God. There's no middle ground. That's just the way it is. Now, we have to accept that if we're going to make any progress and make any changes in our lives. And we're going to have to want uh, deliverance. We have to, have to desire a change. 
And this is why uh, John, in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, he tells us, but as many as received him, as many as received Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Redeemer, as their Messiah, and they received the gospel message, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. The gospel was preached so that you and I can enter into a right standing, a right relationship with him, so we are no longer children of the devil, but a children of God, but children of God, sons of God. Well, how do you get to be a son of God? How do you get to be a child of God? Jesus told Nicodemus very plainly, John 3, 5. Hallelujah. Except a man be born again of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You need to be born into the kingdom. And you do that by repentance and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's water and spirit. Just like with natural birth. Talked about it many times. Hallelujah. When a woman gets pregnant, she's got a little baby growing in her womb and it's surrounded by water. And then nine months later, when the child is born, it comes out of the birth canal, takes its first breath. In Hebrew and Greek, it's all one word for breath, spirit, wind, and air. So when they take that breath, the breath, take that spirit, water and spirit. It's in the natural and the spiritual is the same thing. So we have to be born again of the water and of the spirit. And we have to understand that God wants spiritual children. He wants you to be born again. He wants you to enter into his kingdom. He wants you to be a child of God. He wants to give you everything that his kingdom has to offer. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Man, we only have a down payment. Uh, Ephesians 1 tells us this is the earnest of our inheritance, a down payment. When you see the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it's just the earnest. It is just a portion of what is yet awaiting us. But when we are redeemed, or rather the end of our redemption is glorification, that's when we enter into his inheritance because we are his sons. Can you say praise the Lord? But again, the important thing for us is to remember that we are his uh, children and we have uh, achieved a right standing with God. A right standing with God. And uh, that's so very important. David said in Psalm 37, 25, and you heard me talk about this before. David said, I have been young and now am I old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Notice again the qualifier, the righteous. I have been young, now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous, the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. Hallelujah. And uh, so going back to Matthew 6, 24, about the two masters, and I want you to now think about this, this what, what Jesus uh, preached when he began to minister publicly. Now listen to some of the words that, that he said in Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. When he went back to, to Nazareth, and he sat down in the synagogue, and uh, they gave him a scroll. And uh, from Isaiah, he began to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach the deliverance to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Please note, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He didn't say that I'm anointed to feed the multitudes of poor. I'm not here to make the poor rich. I'm not here to, to, to make them what they think they ought to be. I'm here to preach the gospel. Why? Because if I preach the gospel to the poor, then they will come into a right standing with God as a result. They will have a direct line to their heavenly father who will provide for all of their needs. You see, God is not a God who's interested in equal, equal outcomes. He's not here to guarantee that everybody gets the same thing. In fact, you say, you know, everybody has different talents. Some has one, three, and five. Others have three, five, and ten. And according to their faithfulness or what they do with what they're given, the rewards in heaven will be given out according to the measure of their applying and investing and being stewards, good stewards, over what God has given them. And so depending on what talents or how many you have, you know, uh, you will be able to, to make that produce and, and uh, bring, bring honor to God and, and, and bring also his acclaim of you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom. But you see, God doesn't give equal amounts of talents to all of us. And so... Uh, if, 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 here's the thing, if, if God, if Jesus would all of a sudden, when he came onto earth and, and he began to preach the gospel, so okay, now I'm going to give, you know, a thousand talents of gold to everybody. Here you go, thousand for you, thousand here, thousand there, thousand. Would that solve all the problems of the poor? If they have no self-restraint, no control, if they have no a sense of, of, of gifting or talent to how to manage money? See, this is why it's so futile to think that, that we individually or as a church, for that matter, but even God himself did not come to give a lot of money to anybody. Because we all have different capacities and different talents and different levels that, that we, and different levels of motivation. And so the outcome of our response to a blessing will be not equal. It'll be different because all of us are different people. Different abilities and, and uh, different uh, uh, talents. So, so he, he, he did come to make us rich. I came to preach the gospel to the poor because that, that when they come into that right standing with me, he says, then they have access to me and I can provide for them whatsoever they need. And again, he may not make you rich. He may give you more than to somebody else because he sees that you're faithful with you, what you have already. And you can increase even receive more from God if, if you keep showing that faithfulness. The Bible is very clear on that. That when he sees our faithfulness, he blesses that. He multiplies that. Look at Joseph. God was with him. Man. He was everywhere that he was put, even in prison. 
They put everything in his land because he was faithful. He was good at managing resources and money. It didn't matter that he was a prisoner. But God's favor was upon him. Was it like that with everybody? No. And it's still that way today. But the important thing for you and I individually is to make sure that, that we're in right standing with God. The most important thing that you can do is maintain your righteousness, your right standing with God. Because if you do, then God will give you everything that you have need of. Praise the Lord. This is why also in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, I taught on this before, and I think you may remember, but I really felt this necessity to repeat to you again. Jesus here is saying that we must hunger after righteousness. And when he says hunger and thirst, it's not just, well, you need to dabble in it and you need to have a little righteousness now and then and you need to read your Bible. No, 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 you don't understand. What he's saying is that in a physical sense, if you don't eat and you don't drink, you die. And in the spiritual sense, we have to see it the same way, that if we don't have the righteousness of God, if we don't have that right standing, if we don't have his favor, if we don't have life, the source of life, we die. Not just physically, but eternal death, the second death. So that's why Jesus said, you got to put righteousness first. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So now let's see how this plays out in several examples in the Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. uh, And I'll read all the way through verse 21. Listen to this. And if you have a Bible, follow along. So then Jesus went forth and he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. And when it was evening, everybody say evening. evening. His disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals, food. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart, give ye them to eat. And they say to him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And he took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. So it's conceivable to think that if you multiply it by three, uh, if everybody had a wife, which is probably doubtful, but there were at least 10 to 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And by the way, this is also something that's repeated in the Gospel of John uh, in chapter 6, verse 5 through 13. This is the only event that's also repeated in the Gospel of John. Um, and he says some extra things about this, but the point is the same. Same amount of people, same amount of baskets and fragments collected up. But the point is this, that there was a great multitude, and they weren't there because Jesus had a banquet. 
He didn't advertise a revival and said, okay, go tell his disciples. He said, go to all the villages. Hey, come on. Jesus is going to have a big banquet. Come on out over here to this place out in the open, and we're going to have food for everybody. No, quite the opposite. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And he ministered to them. Yes, yes, they came for miracles. They came for healing. They came for other things. And they came for his teaching, for his doctrine. Hallelujah. And the Bible says that when it came evening time, instead of sending them home like the disciples wanted to, what was in their mind? Hey, it's time to eat. They haven't eaten all day. What are we going to do? We don't have enough food for that. Let's send them back to the villages before everything closes up and, you know, they can, they can fix their food and get some food. And Jesus says, nah, you don't have to do that because they stuck with me all day. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to perform a miracle right here. And he took those five fish and two loaves and he fed every one of them. Then you go to Matthew chapter 15, the very next chapter. Uh, he repeats the miracle uh, and, uh, with, with different folks. But in uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 29, and I want you to bear with me. I, there's, there's a reason why I'm, I'm reading this. I want this to sink deep down in your minds. And you should be reading along if you have your Bible, if you have digital or whatnot, because it'll sink inside of you better. I want you to get a hold of this concept. Uh, we're in the last days, folks. And with what's coming down in the next 6 to 12 months is going to be difficult days. You may not always have the food that you want, and your refrigerator may not be filled like the way you used to. You may have to go week to week, or you may have to go day to day. And I'm trying to build your, your faith up and, and make sure that you, don't, that you don't get offended because you don't have everything that you wanted. But if you got everything you need, if you got your belly filled one day, you got all the water that you need to drink, if you've got shelter over your head, you got clothes on your back, you've got everything that the, mo the most richest man on earth has got. And so don't be upset because God, all of a sudden, amen, that's an amen corner. She's not, he's not objecting. He's, he's amening me. Praise God. He says, yeah, preach it. Preach it, pastor. Hallelujah. That's the way I take it. Mm. Amen. So, so the, the difficult times are coming, folks. Uh, again, I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm trying to prepare you. And understanding kingdom principles, that just because hard times come, it doesn't mean that, that God's given up on us or he's failing us. And if you've got your food, your shelter, your clothing for each and every day, you've got everything that you really need. You got more than, or at least as much as the wealthiest man on the face of the earth. So, Matthew chapter 15, 29. Um, I want this again, these principles to sink deep. And verse 20 says, And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh or near unto the Sea of Galilee and went up in a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, meaning they can't talk, maimed and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus calls the disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three 
days. And having nothing to eat. You mean Jesus, the God of heaven that had poured out manna every day for the Israelites of a mill and a half, two nights, but he wasn't even as compassionate to feed them every day? No feast, nothing to drink, nothing to eat. What about the children? Blessed are they that do hunger after, thirst after righteousness. He wanted to see hunger for his number one priority, righteousness. And too often we're not looking for that. We're looking, you know, just to feed. And there's nothing wrong with that too because if God's spirit moves you to do that, do that. It's a part of, of doing good works. God created us to go, not for salvation, but because we're saved. If the Spirit leads you, but you can't do that each and every day and spend all your resources to feed the poor. Hello? Jesus didn't do it. That's what I'm trying to drive home. Kingdom principles, not your own mindset. And he said, um, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and having nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. And a disciple saying to him, well, <laughs> when should we get, have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus said to them, well, how many loaves have ye? And he says, they said seven and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks you know, that's a powerful lesson right there. As you go through hard times, as difficult and scarce times will come, you better give thanks for what you have. Instead of complaining, give thanks for what you have. Not complain and murmur about what you don't have. Jesus said, he gave thanks and break them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the broken meat that was left, seven baskets full. And they that did eat were 4,000 men besides women and children. So you have at least 12,000 in that crowd. But you see my point here? In the first instance, the chapter before, it was one day. They, he was preaching all day long. And they'd have everything to eat. At evening time, he fed them. This time, it was three days. And they were basically fasting. Nobody ate anything. And finally, after the third day when he was done, a lot of miracles, a lot of teaching, a lot of preaching, he said, okay, I'm convinced now. You guys are more after the righteousness of the kingdom, not the things. But now I'm going to give you what your body needs as well. And he performed a miracle. And that's what God's going to do for you and I. It's hard times when we have times of scarcity and famine. God is going to be with you and provide for you and I one day at a time. And we will be thankful. We will praise God because we know what he's doing. We know the ways of the kingdom, the ways of the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. See, the times of, of, of plenty for America is coming to an end. America has turned away from God and the biblical principles that has made it great, institutionally so. And we're on a downward trajectory. Things will not always be as it always has been. Because we're in the last days. We're in the beginning of sorrows. And we're going to be in a time of need. But God is with us. As long as we have exactly what we need, we got it made.
Get that in your mind. Praise God. Praise God. You know, uh, and all these times when uh, Jesus was ministering, where did he do all these miracles? Feeding the multitudes and these, these thousands. Where did he do this? Was it in Israel or rather in the kingdom of Judea or was it, was it out in the Gentile world? Well, if you look at it and study it out, you'll see there was all with his people, the people of faith, the people of Abraham, his seed, the children of the kingdom. And that should be a priority for us too and for the church. It certainly was so in early church. Now, it's interesting to me when you uh, look at the uh, example of the Syrophoenician woman. There was a woman that came to him and, uh, and she, uh, she wanted that uh, Jesus would heal him, heal her, her daughter. Hallelujah. And uh, anyway, the, the woman uh, was, was begging Jesus, pleading with him, Lord, deliver, uh, deliver my daughter. In fact, it's in uh, Mark 7. Let, let's just look at Mark chapter 7, verse 21. And look at what Jesus tells her. Seven twenty-four. And from thence he arose and went to the borders of Tyre and Sidon. The border is right close up to northern Israel, right on to the border of, uh, of Lebanon, which was not Israeli territory, Judean territory. But he went close to those borders and entered into a house that would have no man know it, uh, but he could not be hid. He wanted to be, he, he didn't want a crowd. Okay, he just, he wanted to rest and he wanted to go close to that border. And from across the border came this foreigner, a Syrophoenician woman. And uh, verse 25, for a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, uh, let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. She answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said for, to, unto her, For this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. Now in Matthew chapter 15, uh, this very same story is given. It's also giving further insight. Then Jesus went thence and departed to the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast, cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. And he answered and said, I am not sent un, uh, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Lord, I want a miracle. Jesus said, no, it's not for you. It's only for the lost house of my people, Israel, Abraham's seed. For these children. And he said it, uh, that verse 25, then came she and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered this time and said, it is not meat, it's not suitable, it's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. 
If you had a dog come off, a stray dog come from, from the street, and you are trying to feed your children, is it right to take bread that would feed them because they're hungry and give it away to a dog and waste it? That's what Jesus is saying here. Because it wasn't yet the time for the Gentiles. See, Jesus said, I'm coming to the lost house of Israel. My first mission is to come for Israel. Because I promised that I would come through them and for them. Yes, I will save the world in the process, but I have to come through them and for them. There's miracles enough for anybody else. Do you th- you, and so when she said this, look what she says. And he answered, it's not suitable to take the children's bread to cast the dogs. And she, he said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O oh, woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Do you understand this is the first time that a great miracle like that has been done in that region since the time of, uh, of Elisha? The healing of Naaman, not an Israelite. Or with Elijah, the time that when, when, when the widow of, uh, of Zarephath was providing for the prophet. Two miracles done to a non-Jewish person. And here now Jesus, Jesus is doing the same thing for a woman from the very same region. But it wasn't an Israelite. And by her faith, she skipped dispensations, yes. But my point is, but God's focus was on his people. Now look at Acts chapter 6, and I'm bringing it to the church. I'm uh, rapidly coming to uh, the point of my climax here. Hallelujah, I hope. Acts chapter 6, the church is growing and multiplying. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there rose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve apostles called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason for that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. And this is where, of course, deacons are appointed for the first time. That's the daily daily, uh, ministration of food to the needy who were in Jerusalem. Now, when you talk about the Grecians and Hebrews, they were both Jews. The, but, but the Jewish people were, were locals, and the Grecians were those who were Hellenists who came from the, the, the Roman and Greek diaspora in which they went to other parts of the Roman Empire, and they adopted basically, uh, culturally speaking, uh, a, a, a foreign lifestyle, and yet they were still Jews, and they kept many of the holidays and, of course, observed many of the, of the aspects of the laws. But, but to the Hebrew Christians, so both of them were Christians, Both of them accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But now there's a a distinction made because in early church, the Hebrews of Jerusalem that were Christians, uh, they looked differently upon the Hellenists. And the Hellenists felt it and they knew it. See, the the, the Hellenists were, were considered by the Hebrew traditionalists to be compromisers, unspiritual compromisers having adopted that Greek culture. And to the Hellenists, the, the Hebrew Christians were the holier-than-thou traditionalists. And so there was a division. And they felt, the, the, the Greeks, the Hellenists, felt that there was you know, a, an unfair distribution of the food that was coming in to, to supply the need to the widows. And, uh, and of course, right away, the, the apostles addressed it. 
Uh, you know, when, first of all, when you have great revival there, it comes with a lot of stresses and new problems that they've never faced before. And they held, handled them very well. Uh, and so uh, they, 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 they had this, this daily uh, passing out of food to people who were in need. Now remember, there was no uh, uh, welfare system by the Roman Empire. If you didn't have food, you starved. If you didn't have somebody to go to, some relative or somebody else who was benevolent, you were on your own. You'd starve to death, whatever. Nobody cared. You were neglected. But not the church. And the church had special offerings they took, and it wasn't from tithes and offerings. I guarantee you that. I see that from different parts of the Bible. But they had different benevolence uh, by the people of the church that brought food, and they made even distribution to those who had need. Praise God. But notice it was to the church. They were giving daily ministration to the church widows, not to all the widows in the city. That's important. And then uh, we look at another example from Acts chapter 11, uh, 27. Uh, Paul has been now teaching in Antioch, and he's uh, uh, getting a great reputation and uh, uh, great credibility, uh, having in the past been you know, a persecutor of the, of the church of the living God. And he, for the last several years, has been teaching in Antioch. And the Bible says that, that in verse 27, Acts 11, 27, in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth, it's a drought, throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which were in Judea. It's not an indiscriminate, open to the public, everybody else, but it was relief sent unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, which when they got there, they distributed, amen, as a benevolent fund to those who had need and bought food where they could and, uh, and made sure that the people in the church were taken care of. The brethren. Not everybody in, in Judea. The brethren. Hallelujah. I'm talking about priorities here. I'm talking about kingdom principles. And I'll just use two more examples here. And uh, so bear with me. Uh, again, it's reading from Acts chapter 16. It has to do with the same, uh, same subject and the same time as Paul is uh, on his, uh, one of his missionary journeys. And uh, in Acts chapter 16, in fact, let me read the New Living Translation. I think it would be a lot better for all of us. Hallelujah. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Um, the collection for Jerusalem. This is now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people. In Jerusalem, you should not notice this is not tithes and offerings either. This is where a lot of people, a lot of churches, a lot of so-called Christians get totally messed up because they use the scripture to to teach that you don't need to pay tithes or offerings. This this you know just whatever you know God lays on your heart. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. This is not addressing tithes and offerings. Paul already addresses that in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Then he talks about later on uh, in, in Timothy. 
Tithes is very much a New Testament concept as well as Old Testament because that's God's financial plan to support the church. But for other needs, other benevolent needs, there are other means. And this is one of those instances, the collection for Jerusalem. Now, regarding the, your question about the money, so he's answering a question that the Corinthians sent to him, and now he's answering that question. So in regarding to your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. When I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, they can travel with me. And then, it's interesting in verse 5, we need to read that because 2 Corinthians, the second letter to, to Corinth, he makes reference to this as well. Uh, he says uh, in final instructions, I'm coming to visit you after I have been to Macedonia. For I am planning to travel through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay a while with you, possibly all winter, and then you can send me on my way to my next destination. Now, having said that, I want to go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and, and continue with this and then to chapter 9. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, just now... Mind you, when I'm reading now, a year has gone by. From 1 Corinthians chapter 16 now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. One year has gone by. And the Corinthians, they've heard of of all the suffering and need of the Christians in Jerusalem. They said, we want to help. We've got to take back an offering. We're going to, because remember, Corinth at this time was a central port of, of trade. It was a wealthy city. It was filled with people who had lots of money. And the church was the same way, and they wanted to help, and they, they had the wherewithal and the means to do so, and they said, we want to help. We're going to do something. We're going to get offerings together. We're going to send it to Jerusalem. And man, they were really zealous, and Paul was really impressed. And he talked all about this to Macedonia. The next place he went up north in Greece, where there was nothing but total poverty. And he told them, you know, those Corinthians, they they were really impressive. They're really excited about helping Jerusalem and and helping our brothers and sisters in Christ there. And and, and so they mentioned that, and all of a sudden, Macedonia got stirred up. So, well, if they know that, we want to do something too. And they were among the poorest of people. So listen to Paul's statement a year later to now writing to Corinth and and writing to, to that same church again a year later. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy which has overflowed with rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift For the believers in Jerusalem. Notice, they begged us, they implored us. In other words, we didn't want to take it from them because they were so poor in giving for some benevolence. And they said, no, no, we want to do so. We got to do something. Please take this. You got to take this money. All because of what they heard the the, the, uh, Corinthians saying, how they were collecting for the the poor saints in in Jerusalem. And it says then, Um, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing and a gift to the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. 
In other words, the key to their success was they gave themselves to the Lord. As it says in King James, it's the Lord, everything I have is yours. We're yours. What do you want me to do? And when the Spirit spoke, they gave according to what God told them. And God blessed them immensely. Now, as a result, I want you to look at, uh, this is my closing verses in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. And now, Paul is really writing sarcastically, chiding in some sense, tongue-in-cheek, trying to encourage these people because, you see, what happened to Corinth was even though they were so zealous to collect and, and make a pledge towards the Jerusalem saints, they kept being procrastinators and they kept putting it off. And so Paul is addressing this. So he says, in, after he just says this about the, the Macedonians in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he says this, I really don't need to write you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. Again, notice that, for the brethren, for the believers, for Jerusalem. It's not the world. It's not the homeless. I will say it in plain English. And there's nothing wrong with helping them. Please don't misunderstand. But that can't be a priority. Because we don't have enough resources to address all that. The government doesn't have enough help. And they have billions of our tax dollars. The answer is the gospel. So Paul says, I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving to the believers in Jerusalem. For I know how eager you are to help. And I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you and Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. But I'm sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready. I'm sending these ambassadors to story. I want to make sure that when I get there, you indeed collected what you said, what you pledged. As I've been telling them, and that your money is collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready. After all, I have told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift and not, we get one, not one given grudgingly. Remember this. If uh, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. Do you get the context of that scripture? It's not about tithes and offering. This is about alms. It's about a benevolent work towards the people of God. And he says, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. And it's interesting if you want to read the rest. It's still pertinent. I'm talking about kingdom principles. Stand with me if you will. Praise God. Hallelujah.
Thank you, Jesus. I'm glad I'm living in a kingdom. I'm glad to have principles that are established on the rock. The question is, are you living in the kingdom? And do you have the mindset of the kingdom? See, it's one thing to have the Holy Ghost. It's another thing to have a renewed mind. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The gospel does touch the mind first. Hey, Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? And he said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, heart, and soul. This is a matter of the mind as well. When you come into the kingdom of God, there's a radical change in vision because you're now in light instead of darkness. There's a radical change in thinking because now you're learning to operate by kingdom principles, not by the principles that the world operates under. We serve a different God. We're not serving the God of this world. We're serving the Lord God, Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth. Praise God. Some may be confused about the God of this world. You know, the Bible, small g, calls Satan the God of this world, the prince of power of the year. But God, big G, Lord Jesus Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I want you to make sure that you have your priorities right. I want to make sure that you have clear understanding about God's attitudes towards things and wealth and that whether you're in the kingdom of God is not decided by the abundance of things that you have or don't. It's all whether you have all that you need today. Righteousness is first. Right standing with God. If you have that, you have everything. You have access to all of heaven and everything that he can afford. Hallelujah. If you have needs here today, I want you to just close your eyes and lift your hands. If you've got a need in your body, if you're sick, if you're discouraged, if you're depressed, if you need something, if you need a financial blessing too, yes. I'd like you to, in your mind, first of all, see if there's anything in your life that God wants you to change. Is there anything that you need to do to bring your life into alignment with His will? The Spirit is here right now to speak to each and every heart. He hasn't gone anywhere, although some have already gone home. God is still here, and He's here to speak to you if you give him a chance and ask if there's something that you need to change and if not I thank him for everything you have count your blessings name them one by one count your blessings see what God has done count your blessings 
count your blessings. Name them one by one. See what God has done. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, God, in Jesus' name, I pray for the many needs here tonight. I pray for physical needs. I pray for them that are sick. I pray, Lord, for those that have financial needs. Lord, I pray that as the Heavenly Father that loves each and every one of us, so much so that you have taken on flesh and died a sinner's death on Calvary, that you may infuse us with your spirit and your power to change, and that you may give us the things of your kingdom. Lord, I pray for this congregation tonight. Each and every one, hear their prayer, hear the cry of their heart. Oh, God. Hallelujah.